Well, very exciting uh, report to hear. I'm so grateful just even that those who are participating in the work are getting saved. Um, how encouraging that is and emboldening it is for our own faith to hear such good news. Uh, also good news is uh, I get to announce that uh, our Operation Christmas Child has been completed. We've collected all of the boxes. There was a goal of hitting 200. That goal has been here, I don't know, however many years um, and we've never hit 200, and this year we hit 229. And so, how about that? So, thank you all who supported that work and filled that in. If you did not turn in your boxes, then you better hold on to them and turn them in next year. Uh, we will not be holding on to them. You will be holding on to them. Um, so, very exciting. I'm glad to share that update. Um, also, uh, we sent out a, a, an update or an email yesterday talking about our Advent season that begins in two weeks on the Sunday, December 3rd, gathering together um, uh, for the four Sundays in December to make much of the arrival of Jesus, to, to show how remarkable he is and all that he has done. To aid in that, we actually asked a number of our very gifted and incredibly kind-hearted people to contribute in the making of an Advent devotional. And so, if you did not grab one of these on the way in, grab one on the way out. One per household, unless you're in a multi-generational household, then obviously uh, one per um, uh, adult or unit or whatever that might be for your dynamic. Uh, but we, we would love to bless you with this. There are two devotions per week. Um, there's a coloring art that is done by our very own. And so, even, even the coloring art is done by our Trinity folk. And so I encourage you to do that. You can also find digital versions of this on our resource page, on our homepage, trinitynh.org. Click on resource and you'll see the Advent 2023 option. There you'll find uh, digital versions of the whole booklet. You'll also find digital copies of the coloring pages and the activity sheets there because some of you have more than one little enthusiastic um, uh, person in your home that would maybe enjoy coloring or doing the activities. And so you can print those off as needed. Uh, but we just encourage you with this. Um, I hope that it is an encouragement this Advent season. So we're going to be making these hard copies available this Sunday and next Sunday. And then next, um, on November 27th, that week, uh, the Advent devotion begins um, as it's preparatory for when we get together on that Sunday, that coming Sunday morning. So Hopefully you'll be encouraged by these. Please pick one up if you haven't yet. Uh, you'll have next week to get a hard copy as well. And, um, and then, of course, you can always utilize the digital copy on our website. All right. Very good. Okay, well, why don't we wrap up? Um, oh, also, next Sunday, we're going to have a bit of a Thanksgiving-focused service. Uh, next Sunday on the 26th, we're going to... We're going to spend time singing uh, songs that will be expressions of thanks. Um, and the, the focus of the passage of that morning is going to be Psalm 136, which is calling us to give thanks to God. But there is going to be something that you bring to the table, if you will, next week. We are going to have a time in the service next week to offer up expressions of thanks uh, as you think back over the many ways that God has been at work in your life. And they'll just be here in the service uh, we'll try to provide a mic if you want to share. It's just going to be a quick but very God-centered, Christ-exalting way of expressing thanks. Um, and it'll be uh, congregationally um, enjoyed, if you will. Not everybody is uh, extroverted and eager to do anything like that. Uh, but uh, I'm sure there are plenty of us who will be eager to share the many kinds of 
um, reasons for thanks to God. And so that will be toward, uh, toward the second half of our morning uh, in response to God's word and the call that we'll have in Psalm 136 to give thanks to God. And so be thinking about that in the week ahead. What would you say to your church about what you want to give God thanks for in your life? What would you want to encourage your church family with? God, I, I thank you for the way that you've been at work in this and, and just the opportunity that may be and just the mutual encouragement that it will be for us next week. So look forward to that, um, eager for that, and um, hopefully it will be a sweet and, and timely encouragement for all of us. All right, let's wrap up then our series on the significance of the church, and we're looking at our last characteristic of the church, and that is to be faithful. Faithful. I, I, um, Kimberly said something that I wrote down right away. She said, it was a hard but so worth it work. And that's kind of like the tagline for our focus this morning. Being the church, it's hard, but it's so worth it. And so let's read a passage that's important, um, significant, especially in the scope of the life of Paul. It's in his last letter that he wrote before his death. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. We are faithless. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God, I pray that you would use this word to bring great encouragement, conviction, and comfort to our hearts as we consider what does it mean to be the church. Help us to wrestle with these truths, even as unwieldy or as hard or mysterious as they may be. But in the end, O oh God, may we be a people who rest and trust in your faithfulness, O oh God. You are worthy. And we come to you now in Christ's name. Amen. In their book, The Great Dechurching, authors Jim Davis and Michael Graham navigate through the overwhelming data of what is the largest religious shift in American history. For the last 25 years, roughly 40 million Americans stopped attending church. They went from an average of once a month to less than once a year. Both authors, who happened to be pastors, anecdotally felt this and felt that something was off in their lives and in their ministries. And with the help of generous support from a variety of institutions, they deployed experts to lead an expansive, academic review board-approved, nationwide quantitative study to figure out how big is this problem? Who is leaving and why? And what is happening specifically within evangelicalism? What they have found is the largest religious shift in our nation's history. Quote, 
More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and Billy Graham Crusades combined. This is, as the authors say, jolting. Now, you may want to know all the contributing variables to this jolting shift, and I would just encourage you to buy the book and pick it up and read. Our elder team is actually studying and discussing this book for the next few months. And as you read, and as you would see, some of the reasons to varying degrees of intensities are that people have moved and they haven't connected with the church. Some of the reasons are political emphasis have driven out people from the church. I've also realized that COVID has changed stuff. Other variables are like failures on the part of church leadership, whether moral or abusive. And then, sometimes it's less than jolting reasons that stand out. Reasons like the busyness of life. Reasons like travel sports for your kids. Reasons like the changing cultural priorities sort of seeped into the way that we look at life and live it out. While this is certainly concerning, and the data is overwhelming, there are some positives within this data. The biggest block of people who have left the church are actually open to come back with a personal invite from a friend being the most significant contributor to their pathway back. Another positive is that such a shift should cause the church, specifically local churches, to be more intentional at the very things that we have been considering in our series this fall the significance of the church. More local churches genuine living out the importance of being the church with the structure and character of what we have found in these three little letters in the New Testament informing and shaping those kinds of things, that kind of genuine importance lived out in a local church provide us actually the opportunity to regain trust in the presence of others. And that leads us now to the last character of the church that we are considering. Faithful. The church would be faithful. The individual believer and the local church are called to a life being faithful with all that is entrusted by means of the saving grace of God in the gospel of Jesus. Last week, if you were with us, we considered what we are to be devoted to. This week, we are considering what we are to be faithful with. No matter what. Trinity Baptist Church is certainly to be devoted to the good works that reflect the goodness and kindness of God. But we get to do that by being faithful with the gospel truths that we so hold. There's no shortcuts to this. This is the long haul kind of stuff. It It will be how not only we weather trying seasons, but also thrive within them. So my hope in this morning is that we would be faithful that we would be compelled all the more to be faithful with the gospel and by God's grace, fruitful in it. And that's the, that's the pressing point, to remain faithful. As we see here in our passage, and as we've seen a number of times actually through these three little letters, often called the pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, remaining faithful happens by remembering. By remembering. 
And our passage walks us through three things that we should go about remembering. If we want to be a church that remains faithful. Remaining faithful by remembering Jesus is worthy and worth it. How do we remain faithful? That we be a church that remembers Jesus is worthy and worth it. Secondly, we remain faithful by remembering the gospel is greater. All the things around and all the things within, the gospel is greater. And then thirdly, profoundly in the midst of it all, no matter what, remaining faithful by remembering God is the one who is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. So let's work through that together. First, remaining faithful by remembering Jesus is worthy and worth it. And we want to remember Jesus as the first two words of verse 8 say. Remember Jesus. If, if there's ever a, a, an exhortation for the church from the New Testament, it, it could be boiled down to that. Remember Jesus and all that that means. In fact, we actually want to go about remembering the remembers. Remembering the remembers. It's pretty close to the remembrance, but we don't, I mean, maybe remember them. They're okay. But remember the remembers. Remember the remembers. Remember is a theme within these three letters. If you remember, we've come across the word remember a few times. And in fact, in 2 Timothy, you find that in some very profoundly important ways. It's Paul's last letter. And so as, as such, he's, he's writing to his, his protege, his spiritual son, Timothy, and saying, don't forget these things. These matter more than you could ever realize. And you would realize quite a bit in your life. Don't forget. He begins the letter by saying this in verses 3 and 5. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded, remember that word means to cause to be remembered. I am reminded, or cause to remember, of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I sure dwells in you as well. Then in verse 6, right after he's remembering these things, and he says, for this reason, I remind you, I'm wanting to cause you to remember, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you, through laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. So he's remembering the work of God in Timothy and his life, his family, his upbringing, his call into ministry, and he's he is encouraged by that remembering, and now he's reminding, causing to remember all that, that Timothy has committed his life to, to do. Then in our passage this morning, verse 8 again says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And, and we read through verse 13. Now, very interestingly, what happens again? In verse 14, we find the word remind. Verse 14, remind them, the church, of these things. Of what things? Jesus is worthy and worth it. The gospel is greater. God is faithful. Remind the church of these things. Cause the church to keep remembering these things. And to charge them before God not to quarrel about dumb things is essentially what he goes on to say. Remember these things. These are tantamount. These are of most importance for you and the church. Help them to keep remembering. 
So remembering, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word remembering, but I'll just say this. Remembering, as, as least as we see Paul's use of it, remembering is more than just some sort of mental exercise that you go on. It's more than that. It's something that involves the affections and it leads to renewed or transformed actions. Remembering is much more than just remembering enough details to get a, a passing grade on your test, right? It's more than that. C is not a degree. It is, I guess, in a way. But it's more than what Paul is saying. It's involving your heart and it's renewing or transforming your life. Because remembering is rehearsing what is true, ultimate truth. It's rejoicing over that truth. And remembering leads to living in light of that which is true, truer than true, the truest of true. And we don't want to be a church that loses the plot. We don't want to lose the main thing as the main thing. And so we need to be a church that's actively engaged in remembering. Not just with sort of our heads, like we can pass the theological test. But we want to remember with our affections and our hearts. And we want to remember with our lives that are being changed and transformed and renewed. Within that, we find that remembering Jesus also calls us to Remember historical fulfillment. That's important. The next two phrases in verse 8 are incredibly important for us. He says, remember Jesus. Yeah, we can, let's, let's do that. Let's remember Jesus Christ. Then he says two things. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And this is historical fulfillment. So, risen from the dead is speaking to the historical reality of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus includes the historical reality. The gospel isn't merely some spiritual hope, but it actually contains news, good news, that involve time, space, history, flesh, blood, realities. This isn't, the gospel isn't just a good idea, but it's an actual reality. It is a historical reality. Jesus is risen from the dead. He was a real person who really lived and really died and really rose again. It's not a wish dream or a vague hope that we're, we're holding on to and remembering when we remember Jesus. We're remembering an actuality, a historical reality. I encourage you to read and study and think deeply upon 1 Corinthians 15. It walks through this, the importance of such a historical reality to our faith. I mean, the very beginning of that chapter starts off with, hey, here's the gospel. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. For I deliver to you as of first importance. This is, this is the most important thing. This is the ultimate thing. What, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The very kernel form of what is the Gospel. It contains the historical realities of his life, death, and resurrection. Not this theological or ethereal ideas, but the actual ones. Then he goes on to say why this is so important in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just summarize that with these two verses, 13 and 14. But if there is no resurrection, the historical reality of Jesus risen from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
Why does this matter? Well, it sinks all the way down into our very lives and our hearts. We're not simply believing an idea, but we are believing in this historical reality. So if there is no historical reality to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we don't really have any good news to proclaim. And if we don't really have any good news to proclaim, then there is nothing to put our faith in and for salvation. And so as an individual and as a church, we can't go bailing on the historical reality of Jesus. His life is death and resurrection. We can't go bailing on the church where we are to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead together. Not bailing on the church or not bailing on the faith remembers Jesus, or conversely, remembering Jesus strengthens us to cling to what it is that we belong to now. Remembering risen from the dead, Jesus Christ. Rehearsing that truth together, rejoicing in that truth together, having our lives transformed and renewed by that truth and living it out together is crucial to us remaining faithful. So it's a historical reality that we are remembering. We're also remembering the fulfillment of God's purposes. There in that next phrase, the offspring of David. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is shorthand that Jesus fulfills all of God's promises and purposes. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament is leading us to see. Meaning, all of this that we see wrapped up in Jesus is according to plan and we can't forget it. Specifically, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's speaking to David. And he's saying to David, hey, I'm going to do something pretty incredible. Here's what he says. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Some of those words happen in Solomon. Some of it. Solomon was his offspring, came after David, built the temple, the house for God. But that wasn't the totality of everything that God had promised. It just was a historical reality of an aspect of that promise that was pointing to a greater reality yet to come. Solomon isn't reigning currently, so his throne isn't forever. So there's an incompleteness, an anticipation, a waiting for the rest of that to come through. Now, we're getting ready to go into Advent season, and so wherever you are in your Bible reading plan or whatever it is, that you, whatever Advent devotional you grab, hopefully you grab ours too, um, and read, you're probably going to come across these words in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob for a bit, for a long time, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Integral to remaining faithful is remembering that God's redemptive plan for history, the big story that overrides them all, is fulfilled by Jesus. You and I, we, we belong to something big, bigger, bigger than the world around, yet enters into the world we know. This is what we cling to, and this is what we hope in. This is what our faith is on. 
And so as a church, we need to remain faithful to it. And we remain faithful by remembering Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. Historical reality and the fulfillment of all of God's promises and purposes. There's no one bigger or better to place our faith in and to keep on remembering. It's Jesus. And this Jesus is good news to proclaim. That's what the last part of verse 8 is telling us. Remembering Jesus is inherent to the gospel message. I mean, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is this. God saves sinners through the sacrifice of his son. And all who believe in him will be saved. It's believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again in our place. And that all who trust him, trust his life, trust his death, trust his resurrection. If you trust him, all of that which Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection is now credited to you. This is good news. Everything Jesus did and accomplished is now credited to you as if you did it and you accomplished it. Furthermore, all that we have done, all our sin, all our shame, all our rebellion, is now heaped onto Jesus and credited to Jesus as if he did it. And so he takes all of that and he pays it in full. And that payment is validated, and we know it's validated because the stamp is the resurrection. And so all who believe in Jesus, your, your parking ticket of life is validated. It's stamped, paid in full. You're free to go. That's good news. And that good news gets preached. The good news of Jesus is a message that goes out. To remember Jesus is to keep on preaching Jesus. One audibly. It is to be proclaimed. It is to be taught. It is to be spoken. It is to be shared. It is to be sung. It is to be prayed. It is all of that. It is to go out audibly and fill our ears and impact our heads and our hearts. But it is also to be demonstrably going out. It is on display in the very thing called the church. Our very lives being rescued and renewed and transformed. That is communicating also. So our audible proclamation and our life proclamation is saying we want to remain faithful to this Jesus. It's our remembering Jesus. The preaching of the gospel is necessary for the faithfulness of the church. And so this is a very important one I want to say here. Diverting from our diluting of the gospel will only bring about a de-churching of the local church. There are many variables that go into a de-churching of the local church. I definitely guarantee one of them will be a diverting from and a diluting of the gospel. It will bring about a de-churching of the church. Remembering Jesus is centralizing the gospel message in what we believe and how we live out what we believe. So just walk with me through the structure that we considered earlier in our series. The structure of the church. We had about one of the structures of the church is elders. Elders need to shepherd as gospel-centered leaders. If we want to be a church that's going to be remaining faithful and remembering Jesus, then we need elders who shepherd as gospel-centered leaders. What about deacons? We need deacons then to serve as gospel-shaped extensions in the life of our body. We need elders shepherding as gospel-centered leaders. We need deacons serving as gospel-shaped extensions. And thirdly, we need members 
who remember together as a gospel-formed community. That we are remembering together intentionally so as gospel-formed community. That we didn't gather together because it was just culturally valuable for me to be here. We gather together because Jesus has saved our souls and has put us together in this family. And so we are a gospel-formed community. If we want to take this seriously about remaining faithful, then we need to remember Jesus in the structure and character of our church. That not only our structure and our character, we would be gospel-centered, gospel-shaped, gospel-formed in who we are and what we do. Remaining faithful is also remembering then from that, sort of springboarding off of that, that the gospel is greater. The gospel is greater. It's greater than two things that our passage brings out uh, for us to think about. It's greater than, the, first of all, the circumstances in a fallen world. The gospel we are holding on to, that we are remembering, that we are proclaiming and displaying is greater than the circumstances in a fallen world. Look at verse 9. So he goes on, he's saying the gospel that he's preaching, for which I am suffering. He's suffering because he's, he's preaching the gospel. He's bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The gospel is greater than the circumstances in a fallen world. The world is filled with all sorts of obstacles and oppositions. Paul here is literally bound. He's not speaking in hyperbole. He's actually in prison. He's arrested solely for his gospel preaching ministry. Now, you and I, we may not necessarily face that kind of an obstacle, but we definitely face a variety of oppositions and obstacles in our lives. I want to bring out three that we face in our day and our age that we need to recognize, but then remember that the gospel is greater than them. All right? These are the kinds of things that we face in our world and our culture around us today. The first is this. The values of the world around us are daily obstacles and opposition to our remaining faithful. The values of the world around us. The cultural values of our day intentionally reject biblical values. It's not that they're just disinterested in biblical values. They intentionally reject them biblical values, meaning we have less common ground with the world around us than at any other point in our culture. And if I were just to sort of narrow that down, what does that look like? What sort of obstacle and opposition do we face where we have a world around us that has values very diametrically opposed to ours? What does that, what is that communicating to us sort of on the regular? And that is this, The values of the world around us are telling us Jesus isn't necessary. The values of the world around us are telling us Jesus isn't necessary. And no matter what, there's no cul-de-sac and no bubble that will cause you to avoid that reality. The world around us is dead set on that sort of obstacle that you will wake up to Monday morning when your alarm goes off. Actually, before you get home on the road that you're driving... Jesus isn't necessary. That's what we swim in every day. You cannot avoid it. The world around, the culture that we are in, their values, Jesus isn't necessary. Second obstacle 
and opposition that we face. The pace of the world around us. The pace of the world around us is a daily obstacle and opposition to our remaining faithful. The busyness of life and the diverting of our attention. Actually, what you find when you read the great deterching is that that's probably the biggest variable in the great deterching. That's probably the biggest contributing variable, the pace of this life, the busyness of life and the diverting of our attention. And you know what that's telling us every day, the implicit message? So the values of the world are telling us that, that Jesus isn't necessary. The pace of the world around us is that Jesus isn't worth it. Jesus isn't worth the sacrifice of your time and your energy and your efforts. Jesus isn't worth the sacrifice of if you don't do that extra thing, then maybe you won't get that extra promotion. Jesus isn't worth it if you, you give away all of your weekends chasing a soccer ball. That is every day. There is no day where that pace is not waiting for you. Every day. Thirdly, values of the world around us, the pace of the world around us, and thirdly, the aim of the world around us, the goal of the world around us. The aim of the world around us is to help us see that the individual is little g God, that we are the center of experience of life, that we can decide what is and isn't. The aim of the world around us is implicitly saying, Jesus isn't worthy. The values say Jesus isn't necessary. The pace, Jesus isn't worth it. The aim of the world around us is saying Jesus isn't worthy. And every day we swim in this water. These oppositions seek to bind us up in chains of unbelief, unavailability, and uninterestedness. We're just simply uninterested. And if we want to remain faithful, we must remember Jesus. We must remember the gospel is greater. And that's what he says. So Paul is literally bound. We are culturally bound. Paul is in a prison. We are in a prison in our culture, in our world. Paul is facing obstacles. We are facing obstacles. And what does he say? Yet the word is not bound. No matter what, the gospel will break through the hardest of grounds and obstacles and opposition. It's, none of those things are greater than what is proclaimed in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It is the power of God. And the power of God is greater than the power of the world. And that we need to remember. Our remaining faithful is remembering the gospel is greater. Let's take something from Paul's life. A letter that he wrote earlier in Philippians. He was shockingly writing from prison. <laughs> that happened to him a time or two. He had a rough go at it. But he was encouraged. In Philippians 1, 12 through 13, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that it, the gospel, has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. He's arrested and the gospel is not bound. The whole imperial guard is hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. So when we think about it, I I want to be careful here. I want us to be aware of the obstacles and opposition of the world around us, for sure. But it is not to create an us versus them. It's not about us versus them. It's more about, okay, well, let me tell you about Jesus anyway. Those truly are obstacles that we face. But we can go forward into those obstacles knowing that the word is not bound. Remaining faithful by remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than the values, pace, and the aim of the world. And the fruit of remaining faithful is an eagerness to know, love, and follow Jesus together. And a willingness to make him known in worship, community, and mission. So the world around, the gospel is greater than the circumstances of a fallen world around us. And just, we needed even more reinsurance. The gospel is even greater than the hardness of the human heart. Verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may also, they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, this early verse is that takes us, delves us into the mysteries of God's sovereignty and the human response to the gospel. I want to tackle one word that's in there, the word elect. It simply means chosen. The word for elect that we see in verse 10, for the sake of the elect, uh, referring to chosen, is actually coming from the root word that we have to speak. It's the same root for the word to speak. And it also is the same root for the word word. As in, the word became flesh. The word for elect and the word to speak and the word word, as in the word became flesh, are all coming from the same root. It's a word that has meaning derived from the one doing the action. The one doing the action. And so, here it means that God has done the action of choosing. Like God has done the action of speaking. As God has done the action of of coming into the flesh. Second person of the Trinity coming in the flesh. Now, um, it's a mystery on how all this works, but the, the Bible just bluntly states it. So think of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's initiating act of choosing or electing is because of his love and according to his purpose. Purposeful love, God acts in a way that brings about his people. Now, it may seem a mystery to us from our vantage point. But this is something God purposed before time began. And he did so as an overflow of his love. I, I, don't, I, I don't have access to that. I don't have access to that vantage point of like looking down at time as if it's like a Lego set. I don't, do you? Can you look at time as if it's a Lego set? Time's more like 
something from Ikea. The instructions are confusing, and I'm not entirely sure I'm going the right direction. God is above time. He created it. And before time, in eternity, everlasting past, he purposed out of love to redeem a people to himself. And I know that when we start to try to get our heads around what that means, our ideas of what is fair and what isn't fair and so forth are really, it's, I don't mean this in any disrespectful way, or inconsequential to the holy God who is above it all. But what we have to remind ourselves is on something that's mysterious, what the Bible is saying clearly, he did it out of love and he did it on purpose. Whatever that mystery might be, and how that dynamic happens between the sovereignty of God and the response of a person, its roots, its foundation, is that God did it on purpose out of love. Take comfort in that. Also know that no one knows who the elect is, but we do know that the gospel is greater than the hardest of human of hearts. And it will it will plow through whatever calluses and experiences and hardness and darkness that might reside in our hearts. When Jesus said not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church, we could also say not even the hardest heart can prevail against the gospel. And so we take rest and comfort in that. God is more powerful than the world around and even the heart within. The gospel is greater than the world around and the heart within. As we saw in the first point, God is faithful to his purposes. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And God is also faithful to his people. He will save his people. And get this, he will see his people all the way through. They will receive a salvation, obtain eternal glory. What good news. Philippians 1.6 says that. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God burst through your hard heart and brought life. And he'll see that life all the way through to the very end. And we want to be a church that helps each other remain, remain faithful by remembering the gospel we cling to is greater than the obstacles of the world around and the heart within. And that leads us then to the last comfort that we find from this passage to remain faithful, and that is this, God is faithful. That faithfulness ultimately prevails because God is faithful. God is faithful. We find here what some scholars believe is a hymn. Maybe, maybe penned by Paul, maybe incorporated by Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It might have been something that was sung, maybe not. But it's these words in verses 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We have two lines of faithfulness in this little passage. The first two lines describe the believer who is united to Jesus through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. By trusting in Jesus, believers have died and live again with him. What wonderful news. You have died to your sin and now are alive to Christ. There's no take-backs on that. What incredible news. Not only that, but by trusting Jesus, believers will see it all the way to the end. Belonging to Jesus is then the greatest surety anyone could ever know in this life. So from those two lines of faithfulness comes two lines of denials. We see two lines that describe those who taste the gospel but ultimately reject it. They're denying and their faithlessness 
faithlessness speak to rejecting the truth of the gospel, the person and work of Christ, the very faithfulness of God. But the Bible is not unfamiliar with presenting that to us. Jesus did. He did so in a very famous parable. Parable of the sower, often called, but it's really a parable of the soils. In Mark chapter 4, I want to touch on the parable of the soil and or the soils and then Jesus' explanation. First, verses 3 through 8. Jesus speaking. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Certainly the soil is about the human heart. The responses of the human heart to the gospel that's being sown and scattered about. Now we all, a general rule with parables, you don't push them too far. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to make every little detail into some sort of specific thing. But when Jesus explains a parable, we should probably pay attention to what he explains. And so he does so in verses 14 through 20. So Jesus goes on to say, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones who sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So whether it's spiritual warfare or the difficult world or a distracting world, they all contribute to ways that people deny or turn faithless. They reveal, then, the condition of the heart's by their actions later. Fascinating. But one of the points of application for us as we consider the wrap-up of our series on the significance of the church is that we need to be a remembering people, remembering that Jesus is worthy and worth it, remembering the gospel is greater, remembering God is faithful. And as we do, we're just going to be scattering that gospel message wherever. I mean, one of the compelling things about the parable is that the sower is just throwing seed all over the place. And he just keeps throwing the seed everywhere. We want to be a church that's just scattering the seed all over the place. Just throwing it all over. I don't know the condition of anyone's heart, but I do know the power of the gospel. And so I'm going to throw the seed wherever it goes. We don't know that. So we just keep remembering. And we just keep preaching. And we just keep gathering together for prayer for word, devoted to good works, and remaining faithful with what God has given us. And we lead to those, those, that hymn, if you will, leads us to this one overriding hope. And that no matter what, God remains faithful to his purposes and his people. And Paul knows this to be true. This is the end of Paul's life and he has seen so much. He's been abandoned by people he held dear and near. He has faced the intensity of a world bent against the gospel. Yet he remembers Jesus. And he remembers the gospel is greater. 
and he remembers God is faithful. And that is his personal hope and his exhortation to Timothy. This means that our faithfulness and fruitfulness are cultivated ultimately by the faithfulness of God. God will not fail. He will not bail his purposes, and he will not bail his people. He will not bail on it. And you and I, we can't do this without him. So we labor to remember in thought, in heart, and in will. To remember Jesus is worthy and worth it. To remember the gospel is greater. To remember that God is faithful. Trinity family, we are entering a significant season as a church. Just under two years from now, we will be celebrating 75 years as a church family. We have a wonderful opportunity to recognize and reflect on and rejoice over 75 years of God's faithfulness. His, not ours, His. His faithfulness through the early days of our church when we were meeting downtown Nashua. His faithfulness through hard days of our church which it could have gone under. His faithfulness in our very day right now and however many days ahead. You and I, we belong to a God who will remain faithful. And we get to rejoice over that. But we also get to look ahead, to be compelled, to be convinced, to be eager to remain faithful as a church family for another 75 years. Why not? Why not another 75 years of holding up and holding out that Jesus is worthy and worth it? Why not another 75 years of believing and living out the gospel is greater? Why not another 75 years of trusting to and clinging to the faithfulness of God? Why not? But just as we started with, it's hard. It will be hard. It will most definitely be hard. But it will so be worth it. This will be costly, but compelling. It will be hard, but it will be hopeful. It will be work, but worth it. So, church, hopefully you're encouraged by the significance of what you belong to. Lean into that. Hold on. Don't bail. Don't let go. Let's see what God will do. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that it would find a home in our hearts, bring about renewal and transformation, that we'd care deeply about these things, that we'd be a people who remember that we would rehearse these great truths, that they would be so life-giving to us, that it would renew us again and again and again, that it would make us new, those who may be far from you now. God, would you help us to be a people who remember that Jesus is worthy and worth it and live like God, the gospel really is greater and to rest in your faithfulness. Would you do these things, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.